Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to gather to worship you. We're reminded Wednesday night and last Sunday of the persecuted church, Christians of every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue who risked risk their very lives physically to come together to worship you and yet count Jesus more precious than anything else. And so they put their necks on the chopping blocks and they come together because you are worthy, Lord. So help us not this morning just to mail it in, to cash it in, uh, just to check the box, but help us truly to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that these words, these eternal sacred words, would find good soil in each and every heart here and bring forth fruit and life. I pray for those in my midst who have never turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as the only way for forgiveness of sins, that today that miracle would happen, and this Christmas season they would receive the ultimate gift, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we praise you in his name. Amen. So last week we began a series through the Gospel of Matthew called what? One person. Thank you, Helen. Thank you that you were listening. No, that's exactly the name of the series, The King. And if you like to outline books, it can be helpful to trace the argument of a book. We are in the first two chapters, the first section of the Gospel of Matthew called The King's Arrival. Well, today, uh, as Pastor Nick read, we are going to dive back in at chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And my hope is... um, that this familiar Christmas passage would be, I don't know, de-Norman Rockwellized, de-sentimentalized, and we'll be freshly stunned by what it means that deity became humanity and the miracle that that involved and what that means for us. Now, as I mentioned, we have a missionary presentation coming up at the end. I want to leave time, so I'm not going to have my normal really long invitation, or uh, maybe I'll have an invitation, but introduction And we're going to dive right in. The name of this message, the title is simply The King's Birth. The King's Birth. And we're going to trace our trek through Matthew 1, 18 through 25 under these points. First of all, this narrative includes a very scandalous story. A baby bump. Then second of all, we're going to see that there's actually a supernatural reason for that, the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we're going to do a little bit of theology. We will put shoe leather on it. We're going to learn a special word that has in view a specific mission, namely hypostatic union. And I'm sure when you're having your coffee this morning, you used the word hypostatic union. So we'll cover that. Y'all with me this morning? Real quiet this morning. Let's dive right in, okay? First of all, a scandalous story. And I have succeeded in losing my, oh, I got my glasses right here, my $125 Dollar Tree specials. Somehow, it becomes apparent that this lady, Mary, is pregnant. I don't, the text doesn't tell us how they found that out. Did they find a trail of uh, cracker wrappers somewhere and and, uh, you know, snack wrappers when a woman is especially hungry during maybe parts of her pregnancy? Or did they notice that she wasn't eating at all? She had the baby flu? Or, or did they just notice that her profile was changed a little bit? She had a baby bump. 
But it became apparent that this, this young woman named pa- Mary is pregnant. She's with child. To which you might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Women get pregnant all the time. Every day, women become pregnant. They become, what's, what's the big deal? Well, drop your eyes down at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1 with me, if you would. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And this will tell us why. It is a bit stunning that she is, in fact, pregnant. In fact, it's not stunning yet. It's just scandalous. Now it says in verse 18, Matthew 1, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is about the king's birth. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus before, before, notice that, right? Before they came together, she was found to be with child. What's that saying? Before she was with a man, she's what? Pregnant. Now, Matthew tells us uh, from the Holy Spirit, but, but Joseph doesn't know that yet. We're going to get to that. I think it would help to understand uh, the weight of what's going on by Joseph's initial reaction. When he found out that this woman whom he's betrothed to is married, he he probably thought to himself, listen, um, I know how this works. My dad told me about the birds and the bees. And it takes two to make one, and I haven't been with her, and she's pregnant. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Jewish betrothal process, because that'll help right there. Um, In our culture, people get engaged, right? And then they get married. Well, in the ancient Jewish culture, it was the same way. There was engagement, and then there was actual marriage ceremony itself commencing their life together. Only their engagement was much more high-octane, much more serious, much more weighty, much more binding. In fact, it, is, it was called betrothal is how the word would be translated. Now, let me tell you some differences between betrothal in that day and American engagement today. In betrothal, though they had not fully yet come together, as we understand marriage to be, they would already be called husband and wife. And that's why in verse 19 it says, Joseph, look at verse 19, her husband, Joseph, he's already called husband. They're already called husband and wife once they became betrothed. Second of all, if the man died in that betrothal relationship, that lady would be considered a widow, just like when a husband dies today, there's a widow. And therefore, the family would help support her as a family member because, after all, she was married to their son. Third of all, to break off betrothal, it wasn't like today. Today, it can be sad. It happens to people. But today, when two people are engaged, somebody can just say, hey, sorry, don't really want to marry you anymore, and that's it. In that day, once you were betrothed, you actually had to go through a divorce process of sorts. You had to have a bill of divorce written. And then fourth of all, this betrothal period would last... um, at least one year, and then they would finally have their marriage ceremony and come together in the fullest and most intimate sense. We've got all the kids here. You get it? So the first process, the first phase, betrothal, was called caducian. And then the second part, uh, beginning with uh, the marriage ceremony, that was called 
Hupsha. So you had Kedushin and Hupsha, they're in Kedushin right now. They're married in that sense, but not fully. So for her to be found pregnant during this Kedushin or during the betrothal process would have been scandalous because you weren't supposed to sleep together. Now let's be honest, it doesn't even seem remotely scandalous today, does it? We live in a time in which, uh, a culture like ours, in which no one even raises an eyebrow when a woman is pregnant out of wedlock, right? It's just considered just natural and normal. Um, I just want to say this. It's not judgmental to say that is not God's plan. God's plan, the biblical way, is one man one woman who have committed together in holy matrimony, right? It's not judgmental to, to, to hold to that standard. It, it's biblical. Now, that, that, that said, let me say very quickly that a child born out of wedlock is no mistake and is still a gift of God, right? And as we even saw in the phys- physical uh, lineage of Jesus or the, or, or the legal lineage of Jesus last week, A lot of people are in his lineage. You got in his lineage in some very, very weird and even crazy ways, right? Does that make sense? But let's just try and put ourselves in Joseph's shoes. What do you think he felt in his heart when he either either heard whispers that maybe Mary has a baby mom or when he discovered for himself that in fact Mary, this woman to whom he is betrothed, is with child. What do you think he felt? Yeah. I mean, he loved her. He courted her. He pursued her. He dated her. He went on long walks with her. He held her hand. They had fun together and memories and laughter and all of that. He was crazy about her. This was not some arranged marriage. He loved her and wanted her as his wife for his life. And yet, imagine how crushed he must have been when he discovered she's pregnant. We, hey, we decided we were going to do this relationship God's way and right. And though I really desire her, we did not uh, spend that kind of time together. And yet she's pregnant, and it wasn't me. I know that. Think about how devastated he must have been. How angry he must have been. How deeply pained and what a sense of betrayal he must have felt when he found out that she was pregnant and he knows he hasn't slept with her. And by the way, I was just thinking, this is, you know, Matthew tells Joseph's story and then uh, Luke tells Mary's story. Imagine what Mary must have felt when the Holy Spirit tells her that she's going to have a child conceived of the Holy Spirit. And she's thinking, now, how in the world am I going to explain that to Joseph, right? Like, what am I going to do? I hope an angel makes a cameo with him like you did with me, Gabriel. All she could do was trust the Lord, and indeed, she did. Now, closing out this first point on the scandalous story, Joseph does something that I think would be helpful for all of us to remember when crisis comes knocking on your door. Anybody here ever going through a crisis? 
No, no, don't say no, don't say no. You know, who knows what 2023 is going to hold, right? We're in 2022, right? Okay, all right. Who knows what 2023 is going to hold, right? Crisis, it could be coming in some way. And I just think um, Joseph's response to this crisis, and this was a crisis, for all he knows, he's been cheated on by a woman he loves, I think his response is very instructive for us. Though he is in deep pain, though he feels a deep sense of anguish and betrayal and pain, uh, confusion, all the rest, right? Notice what he does not do. He's, He's got some kind of feelings going through him, for sure. But he doesn't just fly off the handle and lose it like so often people do when crisis comes knocking on the door. And all he knows at this point is the woman that I love and I want to spend the rest of my life with, she's cheated on me. Now, let's, let's dive back into verse 19. And I, I just get, gained so much respect for Joseph um, that I was sharing with Susan that if the Lord ever wanted to grow our family some more and we had a son, Joseph would be a great name. This guy is incredible. It says her husband, Joseph, remember, they're already called husband and wife during betrothal, being what kind of man does it say? A just man, which some people miss this, means he actually really should not, with what he knows right now, come bring this marriage to fruition. She's been unfaithful, right? She's shown herself to be unethical, for all he knows, right? She's shown herself to be immoral. So he's a just man, so he has every right. In fact, most people would expect he would not bring this marriage to hoopsha or fruition. And yet, because he is a just man, notice what else it says. He was unwilling to put her to shame. Again, he still thinks he's been cheated on, right, at this point. But (laughs) this man has such love for this woman, whom all he knows has betrayed him, for all he knows. He doesn't want to put her to open shame. He wants to minimize her pain. Do you see that? He wants to minimize her shame. And so he's trying to figure out a way where he can, instead of dragging her name through the mud, right, So everyone knows how he was done wrong and how she did wrong. No, instead, he resolved to divorce her. How? By Facebook posting everything he thinks she's done? Huh? By tweeting it, Instagramming it and all that like people do? No, to put her away. I just think it says something about this man's character, don't you? Character, what love and what character. Verse 20, instead of raging is my point, he actually spent some time reflecting on how to walk through this in a way that would glorify God and be least injurious to this woman that he still loves. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, and by the way, that patience is what's going to pave the way for him to hear what no person will ever be able to hear ever again, this special birth. But number one, There's a scandalous story. Do you see the scandal in this from Joseph's eyes and culture's eyes? Number two, there is a supernatural reason for her baby bump. Now, we already were tipped off by this in verse 18, uh, child from the Holy Spirit. But let's just play this out in real time. Verse 20, it says, but as he considered these things, remember, he's not raging, he's reflecting. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. By the way, 
When we think of angels, we think of chubby little innocent cherubs, but biblically angels were fearful, fearsome supernatural beings. Just read Ezekiel, for instance. So an angel appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel tells him what was conceived in his betrothed wife, Mary, is a product of a supernatural act by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go to Luke, Mary is the first one told that she is going to have this special baby. And she says, um, well, how is this going to go down? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, that which will be born in you shall be called holy, the Son of God. Now, do you want me to tell you exactly how that happened? Anybody want to tell you exactly how it happened? Anybody here interested in that? I can't, <laughs> okay? I can't. I, now, I, here's how I can tell you it did not happen in a lot of pagan uh, religions, they have some kind of thing where a god came down, you know, to earth and physically mates with a human being. You know, that's what, honestly, I'm not throwing shade, that's what Mormonism teaches. I don't know how it happened. It wasn't a physical act. God is spirit, right? It is a, it's a mystery. But it's a revealed one, isn't it? It's here for us to receive and to know and to believe. And so the angel continues saying what she will bear, she will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name what? Jesus, what he shall be called, and then why? And you shall call, you shall call his name Jesus for or because he will save his people from their sins. Pretty important, we're gonna come back to that. Then Matthew, verse 21, verse 22, does what he does eight other times in this book. Matthew is writing a Jewish audience, right? He's a Jewish man. And he's trying to, to, to convince this Jewish audience that the promised Messiah promised again and again and again and again through the Old Testament that Jesus Christ is the promised one, prophesied in the Old Testament. So eight times he quotes some portion of the Old Testament to say Jesus is the one. And this is what he says here. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Does anyone know where that quote is from? The book of Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus Christ was born in the flesh, Isaiah said that a virgin would conceive. I don't have time to, to, to unpack that, but that is a prophecy. I, I would just say this. I would just say this. This man is trying to convince the Jewish audience that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything they have believed up to that point. And just as the slipper only fits Cinderella, and just as a cut key only fits a certain key lock, only Jesus Christ historically fulfills all these prophecies in the Old Testament about who Jesus is. So I don't know where you are in your faith, but I would just invite you to open up the, the the text of the sacred book and see, hmm, did God call it before it would happen before it happened? And if he did, could there be some truth in this? Or could this be the truth in which I should shape my life around? Well, how does young Joe respond? Closing out the second point. 
he responds with trust and obedience, though he doesn't know all the facts, right? He doesn't know, all the, he doesn't know everything, but look what he does. When, Jesus, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord, what? Commanded him. So he did three things. Number one, he took his wife. He didn't write her a bill of divorce, or he didn't run that divorce gamut. He took his wife. Just, and just again, we tried to put ourselves in his shoes a few minutes ago. Now put yourself in his shoes right now. He's got to be shouting for joy. She wasn't unfaithful to me. He must have been amazed and just joyful and so happy and excited about their future together. He takes her as his wife. It's such a sweet phrase to me, knowing what must have been going through this man's heart. The second thing the text says is he knew her not. What does that mean, fam? <laughs> you know what it means, okay? Again, we got the kids with us now. He knew her not. He knew her not until she had given birth. Um, now, I'm not sure how long, how far along she was pregnancy-wise when they fully consummated their marriage in the hoop show kind of sense where they had the marriage ceremony. <sighs> but I know that there are things that couples can do all through the process, intimately. And he doesn't, right? He doesn't. Because he doesn't want a shroud of controversy to be over the reality that his wife had a virgin conception by the Holy Spirit so that the Christ would be born through her. He doesn't want a shroud. He doesn't want anybody to be able to reject that, to refute that. Not just virgin conception, which is what it is, but virgin birth. She stayed a virgin through birth. And I just think that's pretty remarkable. <laughs> They're now hoopsha. Uh, it's wedding night and all the rest, and yet he refrains from physical intimacy with her. But note, he doesn't refrain with physical intimacy here for the rest of their marriage, does he? What does the text say? Until, come on, fam, you can touch, you can speak up on this. Until she had given birth. And the reason I'm bringing that up is some religions basically teach that, that, that sex is, is kind of a dirty thing, right? Or in some religions, it's kind of a permissible evil. Some, like Catholicism just frankly holds that of the perpetual virginity in Mary, that Mary remained a virgin, that would have been some kind of marriage for them, uh, the rest of their marriage, right? Because, you know, to have, set, to have it, relations, that, that's somehow kind of dirty, you know? They actually forbid uh, religious leaders, their priests, from marrying, even though 1 Timothy 4 explicitly warns that in the latter times, some, some will, will, will say stuff that's not true, like you can't get married. Sexual intimacy is a holy and good gift from God, a great fire when it's in the fireplace of one man, one woman, committed holy matrimony. And by the way, um, it appears Joseph and Mary had a lot of fire in their fireplace because uh, you read through Scripture and it talks about Jesus' uh, half-brothers, his siblings, via his mom, right, and dad. Now, the third thing, he took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth. And then, third of all, this may be the weightiest, and he called his name what? Jesus. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna hone, hone in on this with, with the third and final point in just a moment. But there's massive payload to that, called his name Jesus. And I would say it's at this point, as it were, 
uh, Joseph adopted Jesus. Some of you asked about the lineage of Jesus because Jesus doesn't come from the physical lineage of Joseph, does he? No, but did you notice that when the angel appears to Joseph to say, hey, this is what's going on with your wife, he calls Joseph the son of David? Did you notice that? Placing Jesus then in the legal line of the promise that there would be a Davidic king who would sit on the throne. And we hit all that last week. So Joseph is, 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 through Joseph is the legal lineage of Jesus Christ fulfilling these messianic prophecies. But through his mom, and this is what Luke hits a little bit more, is his, is his uh, is, uh, I'm sorry, legal lineage through his father. I was confusing there. Legal lineage through his father, physical lineage through his, his mother. That's kind of something on the canonical level, okay? But let me just give this on a personal level. Tommy, who's not feeling well today, um, but we were talking about this issue, and his, his biological father did not raise him. Did you know that? His uncle did. Now, this is what he said about his uncle. My uncle was my dad. My uncle was my dad. Yes, he wasn't the biological father of me, but he was every bit my father. And so when a child is adopted into a family, it's not that that father or mother uh, are any less a father or mother. No, they are the father and mother of that child. And Joseph was in that way very much the father of Jesus Christ. Now, you can be certain. You can be certain about this story. You ever heard of Marcus Borg? You ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? The so-called scholars, and they looked at all the scriptures, and they said, you know, uh, the virgin conception of Jesus, that's just mythology. What they reveal is they don't believe in the authority of scripture. If the Bible says it, I'm just going to say it's true. And I love what James Montgomery Boyce said. He makes this great point. Isn't, this is a significant event, and yet doesn't, both in, in Luke as well as here in Matthew, this virgin conception, it's, 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 it's told in such an understated way, isn't it? Such a brief way, just a brief way. She will have a child by the Holy Spirit. And James Montgomery Boyce makes the point that when we concoct and fabricate lies, and tell tall stories. Think about how much we embellish, right? With unnecessary and myriads of extra details so that that people really buy that lie. Ain't none of that right here, is there? It's pretty spartan in this presentation. It's pretty understated. She, She will have a baby by the Holy Spirit. So let me cut through the fertilizer. Let me be honest. People don't believe in the virgin conception, not because they don't believe in the supernatural. That's not the reason. People believe in all kinds of supernatural things. Horoscopes, crystals, send some good vibes, and all that other silly stuff. My sister, bless her heart. That's what you say when you're gonna say something that's kind of just it's real, okay. Uh, she, she argued vehemently when I became a Christian back in 96 that she went to the University of Michigan and a professor in a religion class said, you know, Jesus was really the product of an illicit, illicit relationship between Mary and a Roman soldier. And that's been bantered about here and there forever. So I, I don't believe in that. There's no way that could happen, she said. And yet, 
and this wasn't yesterday, okay, she took me to uh, a tea room where they read tea leaves and tell your horoscope. You do believe in the supernatural. Everybody believes in the supernatural. I'm sorry. Even atheists believe in the supernatural. I read this quote. Christians believe in the virgin birth. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. I've chosen mine. God spoke. God acted. God did it. The incarnation is a scandal to the modern man. Not because he doesn't believe in the supernatural. Not even because he's not okay to believe in a general view of a tame man-made God. But because the incarnation, properly understood, inseparably connected to the crucifixion and the resurrection, demands a lot from us. It demands that we do what those magi did and we bow down and call him the Christ. Which leads to our third and final point. A special word because of a specific mission. Anybody remember the word that I launched in the introduction 27 minutes ago if you're counting? No, I really don't know. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I almost choked on my coffee. Hypostatic union. Say that with me. Turn to your, no, don't turn to your neighbor. Just look at me and say hypostatic union. Say hypostatic union. Please say hypostatic union. <laughs> okay. All right. So, what it simply means this. The hypostatic union, I'm really losing my way here, means that Jesus Christ has two natures. He has a fully divine nature, full deity, and a fully human nature, full humanity, which are unmixed and yet inseparably connected in the person of Christ. Two natures, fully God, fully human, unmixed, and yet inseparable. Y'all with me on that? So in the miracle of the incarnation, which is what we're talking about in this narrative, the eternal God, fully divine nature, and the second person of the Trinity, fully divine nature, was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, fully human nature, and he grew, this is crazy, he grew just like you did in his mother's womb as you grew in your mother's womb. We ought to be staggered by that. Eternal God became one of us. He became one of us. He had bones and brain and blood and lips and legs and lymph nodes and a head and heart and hands, all of that. And so we'll sing in just a moment, veiled in flesh, can you the Godhead see? I'm adding those words, Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. That's what Emmanuel's getting at, right? God with us. It says in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Jesus, and not, without him was not anything made that was made. You remember those verses? Drop down to verse 14. And the Word became blood, brains, bone. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I hope you come to a point in your life where you behold the glory of God in Christ. Now, if you were to ask the average Christian the so what question, why does it really matter that Jesus Christ is fully God 
and fully man, I think many Christians would shrug their shoulders and say, I don't know. Why does it, wait, why does it matter if Jesus is both fully God and fully? I don't know. I just know we died on the cross. Why does it matter? I don't know. And that's why Christians are so often susceptible to heresy. There was one heresy that afflicted the early church called Apollinarianism after a guy named Apollos. And Apollos said, whoa, 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 whoa. If God were ever to become man, God can't become man because he's God. He said Jesus only looked like a man, but he wasn't fully man. He was like a superman, but not man. That's Apollinarianism. And then there was another guy named Arius who said, whoa, 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 whoa. He was fully man, Jesus was, but he wasn't fully God. He was really special, but not fully God. He was like God with a, a JV uh, letter, not a varsity letter, that kind of thing. Which, by the way, is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. They do. Sects of black Hebrew Israelites believe that, that Jesus isn't quite fully God. So let me, let me start with this humanity. Why does it matter that Jesus Christ is fully human? You might say this. You might say, well, it matters because it, so, so he could know what it, likes, what it would be like to live on earth. And I think there's some truth in that, right? There's some truth in that. It says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way was tempted as we are. Yes, except what? Except without sin. So I think that's a good answer. You might say, well, the reason it matters that he's fully human and fully God is to show us the humility of God. I think there's some truth in that. I remember before we were getting ready to start this church 12 years ago, now 13 years ago, I traveled to, I think it was Minneapolis. No, it was somewhere else. But there was, I was looking at church planning partnerships, right? And there was one organization, we did not become part of it, it imploded because this man's life imploded. But I remember saying, wow, right here at this conference, here's the guy that leads this prospective organization we could become part of as we plant Restored Church in Detroit. So I went up to him. You ever talk to somebody that it only takes about three seconds to realize what a pompous they are? There he was in his designer jeans, wouldn't even look me in the eyes, tapping at his phone, kind of <clears throat> shrugging in that way, go talk to this person. I mean, totally indifferent to me as he was ordering his latte or whatever he was doing. I did not want ever to become part of that organization again. That's not our God. Our God, as it were, he, he, he didn't come down in designer jeans. He came down in a servant's towel to serve us. The incarnation shows us, does it not, the humility of God, especially where he was born. It was not the Taj Mahal. But the ultimate reason Jesus Christ became fully human was this. In order to die in your place, in order to die in our place, in order to pay our penalty, he must be one of us, right? In order to be a substitute, he's got to be one of us. It says in Ezekiel, the soul that sins, it shall die. Ezekiel 18.20. He identified as the sinner in our place, though he is without sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. He said, I will pay the wages in your place. 
And that's why in the Old Testament, all those sacrificial lambs which pictured the coming of Christ, as the writer of Hebrews says, could never take away sins. But only the Lamb of God, John 1.30, who is the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.15. So why does he have to be fully human in order to take our place? Very simply. Why does he have to be fully God? I can cut to the chase on this one right now for the sake of time. The answer is simple. Only God can satisfy the righteous wrath of God against our sin, right? If Jesus is not God, he does not have enough money in his wallet to pay the price for his sins, let alone the sins of the world. Only God can satisfy the wrath of God. And because Jesus is God, he can pay the price. And because he's human, he can stand in our place. Does that make sense? Now, I know, and I'm closing here, I made some assumptions in the explanation. I made some assumptions to everyone here that you know why Jesus came. And you might not. You, re you really might not know why he came. Some of you, yes, I know he came to die for our sins, and you couldn't qu quite put together why it matters that he's both God and man. Hopefully you hold on to this for conversations in the lunchroom. But some of you might not really know. And I, and I can't necessarily blame you, to be honest with you, because there are so many causes People say, Jesus came to address. So I can't blame you for any confusion about why he came. Oh, Jesus came to address poverty. Jesus came to take care of sickness. Jesus came to help us with our poor self-image. Jesus came to dismantle unjust systems. Jesus came to address intolerance. Jesus came to take care of all racism. Jesus came to make a country great or make a country great again. Jesus came to deal with all oppression. You, you understand what I'm saying? I could go on and on and on and on and on. Now, does the gospel have a lot to say about each and every one of those topics? I think it does. But that's not the primary reason Jesus came. It's not the primary reason Jesus came if, 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 the authority of Scripture means anything to you. The specific mission of Jesus is given, and I ask you to drop your eyes one more time on verse 21. He will do what for his people? He will save his people from their sins. That is God's agenda, right? That's the primary reason God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. I like what Alistair Begg put in his message on this text. Quote, the angel did not say he will save his people from Roman oppression. He didn't. Or living in obscurity or poverty. He didn't. Or bring back their glory days. He didn't. No, he says he will save his people from what? Their sins. Daniel Doriani says this in his commentary, the angel declares God's agenda. Jesus will not save his people from their physical enemies. He will not save his people, he, no, he will save his people from their sins. Sin is the root of all calamities. Yes, calamities come from many sources, but the root cause of all disorder is sin. And the greatest disorder a human will ever experience forever is disorder with God. Jesus will save his people from that. So the hypostatic union was for the specific mission of Jesus saving his people from their sins. 
The cradle was for the cross, fam. The king came. The king came to give his life a ransom for many. So people say all the time, and worship team, you can come. Please come. We need to keep Christ in Christmas. I'm, 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 I'm down with that as far as it goes. But you can still keep Christ in Christmas in one sense and still have a sentimental view of Christmas as opposed to a biblical view. So I would say, let's keep the cross of Christ in Christmas. I would say, let's, let's leave the empty tomb of Christ in Christmas. Because of what the angel said, is what I'm trying to say is this. We should not and we cannot isolate the crucifixion the, the incarnation from the crucifixion, right? And the crucifixion from the resurrection. It's part of our gospel presentation as a church, is it not? What, what are those six points, fam? God made you in, he became, that's incarnation. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we should die. That's uh, crucifixion, right? He rose again, resurrection, and he's, he's coming back. And man, man, you know the greatest gift you could ever receive? The greatest gift you could ever receive is the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I quote it Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Most of the gifts that you're going to get this Christmas or whatever you're celebrating are going to wear out. Some of them you'll like a little bit longer than than others, but none of them are going to last that long, right? But when you receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, you receive you, the, the disorder of God, your alienation, your enmity, your hostility with God is dealt with. You are now adopted into God's family, a child of God, both now and forever. And it's going to only get better and better and better as you go off into eternity. Veiled in flesh, Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. So I want you to remember these two names. Emmanuel. That means God is with us. What humility. And then the word Jesus, God is actually for us. The one who has the greatest beef against us, legitimate beef, dealt with that at the cost of his son because the scripture says, while we were yet sinners, fam, Christ died for us. Because he's man, he can sit, stand in our place, suffer in our place, and because he's God, he can actually pay the price in full. So will you like, will you like, this Jewish man, Joseph, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as your Savior. The king's birth. You can be certain, and we ought to be stunned and staggered. Father, please use this message, first of all, to save any person who's never trusted Christ in this room. And then second of all, to reawaken us to the joy and wonder of Christ incarnate, Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ ruling, and Christ returning. And may our life only put Christ on blast for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.